Today we're going to look at a few different passages throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, documented in Luke's Gospel, all with a single theme. In so doing, we'll understand what Jesus believes on this topic, what Jesus commands us to do regarding this topic. We will be protected from false belief, false hope, and living lives under false presupposition. We will have an additional layer of motivation, no longer looking to this world to be the thing to satisfy us, and we'll be able to offer people authentic hope. The topic is judgment, as in the day of judgment. I partly combined all of these passages from Luke in order to teach on it less in total, but also, yes, to gain more clarity in a single sermon. It isn't something that we are pleased in thinking about. It isn't something that people like hearing preached. It isn't something preachers like to preach. But if all of that's true, then why does Jesus teach on this concept? Why does Jesus preach about it in the different communities and villages he traveled through? It isn't that he's trying to be manipulative, because we've already seen Jesus more than willing to send away those who are inauthentic followers. He has been willing to speak hard truths and lose the entire crowd, and even ask whether or not his own disciples will leave him. Jesus teaches this, and it isn't a lie. He isn't, he isn't lying to us. He's telling us the truth. This is the same, verily, verily, I say unto you, Jesus, that we've always known. It isn't that Jesus himself celebrates in the idea of judgment. Jesus teaches this topic because he loves people. He loves us. He is equally compassionate when healing the sick as he is in preaching the truth. He loves us, and he wants us to know the truth, and he wants us to live accordingly. And Jesus lovingly warns us. For some, it will be a deterrent from the foolish lives that we would have been living, awakening us to recognize the seriousness in which we need to set our hearts right before God. But let's start with this moment of, of some of Jesus' disciples apparently clearly having a misunderstanding of why Jesus came. Luke 9, and we've already read past this in our series through Luke, but Luke chapter 9, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he, Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And so this community rejects Jesus purely because he was going to travel through there and eventually go to Jerusalem. He was on his way to worship at the rival temple. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? Whew. All right, so that's a, that's a pretty crazy thing to say to Jesus. Uh, some 
translation, some manuscripts add the phrase, as Elijah did. All right. And James and John, they're, I want to point out, demonstrating a great amount of faith here, believing that upon their prayers, they could call down God's judgment on this village. It also demonstrates in their hearts and perspective that somehow, in rejecting and refusing to receive Jesus, that this village is worthy of judgment. Let's find out what Jesus does here. Verse 55. And we'll, for the most part, like this response. But he turned and rebuked them. Right? Jesus turns to his disciples. He doesn't in that moment, correct that village's response. He corrects a, an imbalance in his own disciples, his own leaders, in how they approach the concept of judgment and how quickly they would uh, dole it out on others. He turned and rebuked them. Some manuscripts in verse 55 say that he said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy people's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Now, if this was the only passage in which we hear Jesus teach or correct views on godly judgment, right, we would have a simplified version of who Jesus is. I think for the most part, we, we would like the idea because if we, as the Bible testifies, we would recognize that we are sinners worthy of judgment. And we'd be like, all right, phew, awesome. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm against judgment, is perhaps what we would walk away with, right? Jesus corrects this, this imbalance in his own disciples. And it would seem as though he's indicating he would, would disagree with such judgment. But let's ask, does Jesus judge? Is this always his stance? Let me show you a passage from John chapter 12, verse 46. He says, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I don't judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. All right, so this is kind of giving some validity to those other manuscripts, where at least they're, like, representing things that Jesus has, has said before. And so Jesus' mission on the earth at the time of his ministry wasn't to bring justice and judgment for sin. He came, in fact, to bear justice and judgment for sin. Right, 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. All right, Jesus intended on us, right, being redeemed. That's the purpose of his coming. But Jesus will one day judge, right? He says, I didn't come into the world to judge the world, but to save them. But in Matthew 25, Jesus describes his second coming. Verse 31, he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Alright, so this, this coming is with a different purpose, different intent, same Jesus. The only difference is, previous Jesus was in humble form, right? Come as a man, humbled himself, 
right, to seek and save. And in this second coming, he's in his glory, revealed as king and in authority over all the earth. Verse 32, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another. All right, and then verse 34, he, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And skipping later on, verse 41, he will then say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And so it seems as though, although Jesus in his earthly ministry did not come to dole out judgment, he will one day come and judge. In fact, back in John 12, 48, this is what he continues with. He says, The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. All right, so basically we will be held accountable. We will be judged according to the things that Jesus has spoken, the truth that he proclaimed and whether or not we receive it. All right, so, so Jesus indicates here, he's like, okay, right, I, I'm, this isn't the reason that I came right now, but there will come a time in which judgment will happen. People will have a judge, a judge. they will be held accountable, right? I will be the one, right, that sits on a throne and separates humanity some, I will say, come, you who are blessed, and others, I will say, depart from me, you cursed. Okay, so Jesus very clearly will, at some point, bring about judgment. And Jesus taught his disciples some, some balance in this, and, and okay, how do we present this fact to people? All right? In Luke chapter 10, we've already read some around Luke chapter 10. Uh, this is when Jesus sent out his disciples into these villages. And this is what he says to them, right? Uh, and this is a summary, just for sake of time. You can go read, uh, go listen to our other sermon more fully on this topic. But he said, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you, right? Go into these villages, proclaim the gospel, offer them freedom, offer them blessings, verse 10, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, okay, so same sort of scenario that we just saw in Luke chapter 9, when James and John are like, hey, Jesus, want us to call down fire on this village because they didn't receive you? And Jesus is like, no, you don't know what spirit you're of. This is what Jesus does command us to do. He says, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. So Jesus doesn't pour out judgment in that moment, as his disciples who desired to call down fire did, but he does instruct and command that those who were going out representing him, teaching about him, bringing the kingdom of God, healing the sick, to at minimum warn the communities that don't receive them. And to even participate in this practice of kicking dust off their feet and to not do it, uh, you know, secretly, but to publicly warn them in their doing it. So Jesus doesn't want them to call down judgment in that moment. 
but he does want them to lovingly communicate a warning and to let them know the kingdom of God came near you. And at this point, at this moment, you rejected it and you are now accountable to that choice. All right. And so, so even that, like, it's like, okay, so Jesus wants us to warn those who would reject him. That we don't merely present him as like this attractive Jesus of like, hey, come check out Jesus if you want. But no, we're at the same time saying, hey, listen, this matters. This is significant. A lot is at stake. And without Jesus, all of us would be accountable to the wrong that we have done. And so we don't put ourselves in a, in a better category than, than they are. Right? We're like, hey, we've also sinned against God. We also are worthy of and deserving of his just judgment for sin. The only difference is, have we received the grace that he offers? And Jesus, in talking about these villages, as he's about to send out more disciples to do this very work, verse 12, he says, I, that is Jesus, tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And so, so Jesus, in a lot of his teaching, right, we've already seen, right, the disciples reference, do you want us to call down fire like Elijah? Go read that story this week, right? Or more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town, right? Go look up the biblical word Sodom. Go look up that city and that event. And what is Jesus referring to? He's looking at that event of just judgment of God bringing down literal fire and brimstone on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament. He teaches it as though it happened, okay? And as though those people were real people, not fictional, and that those people will still experience a degree of judgment in that day, the day of judgment. But what's interesting is, he says, for the people who refuse to receive the message of God's kingdom, the message of the gospel, he says, they will experience a less bearable judgment than even Sodom, this historically known sinful city that God judged. And so it does point out here, Jesus believes in just judgment. He lets his disciples know there will eventually be a judgment that if Christ is not received, it will eventually be poured out. And what's interesting here is he starts to get into this idea of a varied judgment, that it's not the same judgment for each individual, for each community, for each nation. That he actually says that for Sodom on that day, it will be more bearable for them, they're still receiving judgment, than for these communities that reject Jesus. All right, and so so now it's like, okay, so there's there's judgment, but there's there's gradation somehow present. And then he continues, verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. And so now Jesus seems to point out that mighty works should bring about repentance. 
and that there is this greater accountability that comes with greater knowledge of the truth. Okay, the, uh, the phrase, we'll read it later, that the one to whom much is given, much will be required. Right, that Jesus, when he does miracles, they are intended to be mighty works as signs, and they aren't done for entertainment. They were not merely done to bring relief and love and show compassion to the hurting, but they were also done to be evidence to produce change in the lives of those who observed them. Right, and why is Jesus pronouncing this warning and woe on their town? Because mighty works were done there and they didn't repent. And once again, he talks about Tyre and Sidon, these other historically known cities that were rebellious against God, that were prophesied against in Isaiah and Jeremiah and others. And Jesus is saying, like, hey, these historically known cities that were deemed as evil in your holy manuscripts, it's going to be, right, even those cities would have turned, would have repented if they had seen the works that you have seen. Okay? It's by implication here that the woe is being pronounced on these town towns because of their refusal to repent, to, to turn from living life their own way, to, to turn to Jesus and receive him. In Matthew's account of this same uh, proclamation that Jesus does, it says this, it's, it's more explicit. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. All right, so it's not just that Tyre and Sidon would have repented long ago. It's that these communities refused to repent. And so just as, and we've read it before, the kindness of the Lord is meant to lead us to repentance, to, to lead us to our loving Father to produce freedom and forgiveness in us. So too should the mighty works of Christ lead us to repent. All right, and, and so he continues with a similar theme that we've seen earlier. It will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. And so once again, Jesus uses the phrase more bearable, suggesting that judgment for sin will be appropriate, will be proportional, will be varied on the basis of, right, the things that we've done, and the knowledge that we had and rejected. And what's interesting is, right, these cities and cultures would have considered the sins of Sodom, Gomorrah, Tyre, and Sidon, uh, right, to be, right, pretty serious, and to think, like, probably, hey, we're not as bad as them. Or, you know, hey, if if God wanted to count us in that group, right, surely God, God's not going to punish all of us. Like, those people definitely deserve God's judgment, but not us. Like, we're fine. We're not as bad. And Jesus is using these examples to try to wake them up, to alert them to the realization of their own sin and their need to turn from it. Jesus also suggests that God will bring all of the injustice in the world to judgment, 
that he won't ignore the sins of some people and cities just because there are worse. It will simply be more bearable for some than others. Verse 16, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And so Jesus considers and pairs the the lack of repentance, the, the, the lack of turning from living life our own way, to be an active rejection of the salvation he offers, to be an active rejection of the God who sent him, God the Father sending him. That these things can't be separated. All right, in the same phrasing, in the same teaching that Jesus is doing, right, he says, right, the mighty works done among you were supposed to bring about repentance. You didn't do that. And in not repenting, you were rejecting. You weren't receiving me. And so we can't separate those two ideas. We can't, uh, it's not possible to preach a gospel for people in which they somehow accept Christ without repenting. Okay, we can't receive the grace that he offers independent of repenting, turning from our sin, acknowledging the wrong that we've done, and our need for that grace. Now, Jesus continues in, in Luke chapter 11. So, this is another, another passage, but he's making similar points and expounding on them. Verse uh, 29, When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. In fact, in Matthew's account, he says this is an evil and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign. Right? I want to point out, God considers our living for ourselves or our making other gods to serve, whether that's lust or money or greed, greed, pride, ego, Right? All of these things, he considers that to be spiritual adultery against him. Right, Just as uh, he was saying, like, you know, lack of repentance, lack of turning is rejecting God. He's saying it's, it's the same thing here. It's, it's adulterous. Verse 30, for as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, And now this is really pulling on your old Sunday school knowledge, right? Now it's like, okay, so Jonah, Nineveh, he says, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. And what is that sign that Jonah was to the people of Nineveh? In Matthew 12, he tells us, verse 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so Jonah spent three days in a fish and returned, bringing a message of repentance to Nineveh. This is in the book of Jonah. We actually did a sermon series on it maybe three years ago, four years ago. At which that community, to to Jonah's dismay, turned. They turned, and instead of justice and judgment being poured out on that city, it says that God relented from the disaster that he planned for them. All right, so that's like a quick little summary of of Jonah's story. Uh, Then God also does this work in Jonah's life and heart, but, but nonetheless, right? Jonah brings this message 
of judgment to Nineveh, they repent, and God relents. God decides to not follow through with judgment. And Jesus is saying, in the same way, the Son of Man, Jesus, will be to this generation. And what he's referring to is his death, burial, and resurrection. Okay? That, that Jesus is going to be buried and be dead for three days and then raise, and that that will be a sign to this generation. And it should produce the same response as Jonah did Nineveh. It should produce repentance. And, right, that's what we end up seeing, that based on the evidence for Jesus' resurrection, we should respond with repentance and trust in him. And just as God relented from judgment in Nineveh, God will grant mercy upon us. And then he continues. So, so he talks about Jonah, and now he talks about another story. The Queen of the South, which actually, time out. Jesus talks about Jonah as though he's a real person. Uh, the city of Nineveh, as though it really existed, it's been archaeologically found, it, it is a real city, and as though their response was an, an actual event that occurred. I just want to point out, with the, the esteem at which Jesus places upon the Old Testament and uses it in his own teachings, and its validity is, right, on this basis that these things actually happened, and it matters for your life now, okay? Uh, verse 31, the Queen of the South, and he's talking about this moment between the Queen of Sheba, I believe, and King Solomon, and uh, it's probably the Book of Kings. Or is it Samuel? It might be Samuel. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. All right, and so this is what Jesus is pointing. For a lesser person a.k.a. Solomon, and a lesser reward, the wisdom that he had, the queen showed greater pursuit than the generation that rejects Jesus. Jesus is greater than Solomon, a king who had begun his career living according to godly wisdom. Jesus is like, I'm greater than Solomon. I am worthy of a longer distance traveled, a greater pursuit in order to receive the wisdom and truth that I bring. And those who reject Jesus, he's saying that the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment and condemn those like, how could you turn up the one greater than Solomon? I traveled further for a lesser man and a lesser reward, and you quit your pursuit of Jesus. Verse 32, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For if they repre repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Right? So for a lesser message and a lesser hope of life, the city of Nineveh repented. They turned from their wicked ways and experienced life. And we have a greater message. We have a greater hope. Jesus is greater than Jonah. And the opportunity he offers is more valuable than what Jonah offered. 
right? And Jesus is saying, Nineveh repented for a far lesser thing. And they will rise up at the day of judgment and condemn a generation that rejects Jesus. Okay. So, so we've, we see Jesus kind of make these points. There is a day of judgment. There is varied judgment that it's more bearable for some than others. That Jesus intends on judging those who reject, those who refuse to repent at his message, at the hope that he proclaims and the evidence that he provides, whether it's his mighty works or the sign of being in the earth three days. All right, Jesus also points this out in Luke chapter 12. I tell you, my friends, okay, notice the heart and tone of Jesus here. Don't fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. Right, he's, he's preparing his disciples for real persecution. He says, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And then he says, uh, so perhaps we may not like the existence of hell and the idea of judgment. Right? But we cannot deny God's authority to judge and bring righteous justice. We shouldn't base our theology on what we like and don't like. We can't make a version of God that has no authority to judge these things. To do so is to make an idol and commit adultery against the one true God. And Jesus tells us not to merely believe that God has this authority not to simply check the box in our doctrine of like, okay, I, I guess I, you know, reluctantly believe that God has the authority to cast someone into hell. But to believe it to the point that it produces right and holy fear and respect for him. Right? We aren't to passively believe this as a factual, factually true statement. Right? We are to live with right thinking and actively having this reverence for God. Fortunately, Jesus doesn't stop here. Verse 6, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. So, so Jesus literally said, Yes, I tell you, fear him. And then simultaneously, he reigns in that fear and says, fear not, right? Jesus is correcting both a lack of respect for God and protecting us from a fearful hiding of him. We actually see Moses do this exact same thing when delivering the Ten Commandments. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be upon you, that you may not sin. All right, so, so there's some sort of distinction. There's a nuance here that Jesus wants to produce in us that we're not fickle about the God that we serve who has this authority and is a judge. But at the same time, he's like, listen, 
This God loves you and values you. You are worth more than many sparrows. God is fascinated with you and cares about you. And yes, you still fear him. But God loves you. All right, and so so it's kind of like, right, it's, it's perplexing enough to have us think about it and ponder it that hopefully it's going to bring about right thinking, right? That's the goal, that we, we meditate upon this truth of like, okay, all right, what, what sort of nuance is there? What sort of distinction is there? Where do I tend to lean on one side or the other of this matter? Luke chapter 12, let's keep cruising. Uh, Jesus, once again, teaching about judgment. He says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from a wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Right? So Jesus is instructing us regarding the return of our master to be ready for action. To be ready to open the door immediately, at once, when he knocks. Verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. And while this is challenging to us, this idea that Jesus right, could bring this justice at any time, notice the intent of his heart. He wants us to be ready so that we will be blessed. He tells us this not so that we would be caught unprepared, but that we would live prepared for his coming and being blessed for it. Let me ask this. If Jesus' goal was to catch us doing evil, then why does he so plainly teach us to be ready? Verse 38. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. Right? Those who are living their lives awake alert, prepared, ready, right? Living lives as unto the Lord. Verse 39, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour, now he he changes the analogy, if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. So he's saying like, hey, if if someone's going to break in and rob your house, right? You, and you knew exactly when they were going to show up, like, all right, you'd be ready for them. Verse 40, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is is coming at an hour you don't expect. And so whether we come into judgment by our own death or Jesus's return, the outcome is the same. We don't know when to expect it. Jesus doesn't want us to be unprepared, but also by the Father's design, we don't know when he's coming. It isn't for us to know the day or the hour, and that won't be revealed to us, right? And and oftentimes, I think like we can have this desire of like, oh, how cool would it be if we knew, right? How great would it be if we could figure out or calculate or predict? We can't, all right? But God equips us to be prepared without that knowledge, right? 
what God, what we, we think that would be valuable to know, but what God considers valuable for us to know is this. You must be ready. You must be prepared. This information has been revealed. This is worth teaching and knowing. And Peter then responds to Jesus, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? Like, who, who is this for? Right, Jesus, are you letting us know to be prepared or are you telling them to be ready? Like, what's, what's this about? And what's interesting is, <laughs> difficultly, uh, Jesus answers this question to a parable with another parable. <laughs> right? This is what Jesus said, verse 42. Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them a portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set over him all his possessions. Okay, so he's saying like, this includes those people who are going to be wise and to be ready and who will be blessed because of it. He says, but if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in his coming. All right, notice notice this is like convincing himself, like, hey, my master's gone. It's been a while. He's going to be gone for a longer while. What could I get away with? What could I do? How could I live in light of the fact that my master's not here? And notice that Jesus says he says this to himself. This is a self-deception that's occurring. Not necessarily to the point of the servant in the story, but even at smaller scales, we are at risk of this similar kind of deception. Every time we disobey the Lord, every time we choose to rebel, it isn't because we're wise. It's because we're making a foolish choice based on wrong thinking, right? By somehow believing that we could experience more joy by living for ourselves than for the Lord. And Jesus tells us this story to point out the foolishness of this kind of thinking, that it's okay to live for ourselves since Jesus hasn't returned yet, right? And so back to verse 45, but if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk? The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour that he does not know, and will cut him to pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew the master's will, but did not get ready or act accordingly to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So the one who knew and did not act accordingly receives a severe beating. Right, similar to what Jesus is saying, that there is a bearable, more bearable judgment for some, a proportional amount. And Jesus points out that with this greater knowledge of truth comes an accountability to live in light of that truth. 
Later on in the same chapter, Jesus says this, right, very shortly after. Why and why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make every effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. And so Jesus is talking about, like, immediately following, he's talking about this, this judgment and being prepared. Right? Jesus kind of tells the story of, like, hey, if there's a conflict between you and your neighbor, or there's an accuser, he says, make every effort to settle it on the way, rather than being, right, held accountable to the judge's justice against you. Is Jesus teaching on relationships with neighbors? Perhaps, like it's still true, it's probably wise, right? But the context is the coming judgment that Jesus recommends and warns settling, resolving our guilt prior to judgment in which we will have to pay the total penalty and serve the full sentence. And he's saying, I'm telling you this, right? Jesus himself is saying this because he wants us to know that it's true. He said, make every effort to get your heart right with God now in this life. It is appointed for a man to die once and then comes the judgment. This is the time to bow our knee to our Lord rather than to do it reluctantly later. If you haven't done this yet, I want you to know that Jesus loves you and he wants you to get your heart right. Jesus invites all of us to repentance and freedom and life and forgiveness. Okay, Jesus believes in judgment. Jesus believes in justice. And even with a heart of righteous judgment for sin, Jesus chose to come and die. In Luke 9, shortly after some conversations about judgment, Jesus says to them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus believes in judgment and chose to receive the penalty for our sin. Jesus chose to suffer in our place so that we could avoid unnecessary suffering. His blood was shed to pay for our sin, and he knew this was the reason for which he came. Jesus identified with the what's referred to as the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 in which it's prophesied, and I'm just going to hit the highlights, that the suffering servant was this individual who was despised and rejected by men, who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
that for this individual, it says that the Lord God has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. That he was oppressed and he was afflicted. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief and offering for guilt out of the anguish of his soul shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. All right, I want you to see this, that in Jesus' death and resurrection, he chose to suffer and die, to bear our sin, to be crushed, and to then intercede on our behalf, and to make us credited as righteous, that we could stand before him on the day of judgment. So why does Jesus say all these things about judgment? It's because he loves us. Because faithful are the wounds of a friend and deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Because it is true and helpful even if some do not perceive it as kind. Jesus teaches this because he doesn't desire for any to perish, but for all to reach repentance. Right? Even in the Old Testament, God says, Blessing and cursing I have set before you. Choose life. Jesus, our hope, preached these truths. This isn't doom and gloom. This is, right, doom and hope. It's danger and warning. It's lovingly. It's, it's grace and truth. It's truth in love. And to avoid these truths is to consider these words spoken by Jesus that have been preserved by God for thousands of years to be less valuable, less helpful, less necessary for our generation. But God shares it with us so that we can have hope, that we would avoid unbearable judgment for our sin, that we would receive the one who paid the penalty for us, that we would repent turning from living life that way and experience the abundant life that God calls us to have. The last verse, 1 John 4, and this is such an interesting parallel. 1 John 4, 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us, right? The God who chose to bear our sin, to be crushed so that we could be righteous and have life, right? We have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, right? This is something that has very much shaped the theology of many. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the, the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment 
And whatever fears has not been perfected in love, we love because he first loved us. The same passage that says God is love also mentions the day of judgment. We cannot isolate one from the other to make a more convenient God for ourselves. God is love, but that doesn't erase the existence of and need for a day of judgment. God's God's love and our having been found in him by confessing Jesus is the Son of God, the good news is can give us peace and confidence for that day. Because through Jesus, through the righteous one's death, burial, and resurrection, we can be forgiven, we can be imputed, gifted his righteousness so that we can both now and on that day stand before God, before his throne of grace.